Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is the 4th of August, and this is episode 179. Big show coming up. We are going to be talking to a longtime friend of the show and longtime friend of five favorite books for the people that have been enjoying that podcast, and there have been a lot of you. Uh, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to that podcast, listen to it now, five favorite books. But it is Greg Sheridan, foreign editor at The Australian going to be talking to him about Victoria going into stage four and we're also going to be touching base with him on American politics because despite everything there is still an election coming up in three months and there's a whole lot of stuff at stake so we're going to be talking to him about Trump's chances and Biden's chances and also the idea that TikTok might be banned or at the very least uh, be forced to sell to an American company Uh, I noticed that the guy has stopped uh, doing the buzzsaw and has now gone to hammering but we're going to push through and anyway we have the return of an old favorite segment here at the IPA uh, Young, IP, uh, Young IPA podcast, it is the Young IPA quiz, which controversially will have Peter Gregory as host. So Pete, talk us about what's going to happen. Well, I thought, you know, I need a little bit more responsibility in my life and help, to help me grow up. So I was really happy to take over the quiz. I made a few changes, which I think worked well, but uh, maybe we'll discuss that a little bit more. Uh, at the end, I really enjoyed talking with Greg Sheridan about TikTok. Uh, he's He's very self-aware with regards to his ability with regards to TikTok. And uh, my favorite bit that I'm looking forward to on the show, James, is an old favorite at the end of the show, one of the funnies. And when I say favorite, I mean not favorite. Had a difficult Ooh, week. So some heavy sarcasm from Peter Gregory. Some exactly withering right. sarcasm. But uh, let's, let's talk about it because there's one story happening, well, one main story happening in Australia right now, and it affects everyone. And it is that over the weekend, Victoria moved into stage four restrictions extremely depressing weekend uh here's the stats i'm not going to get into like what we can and can't do because uh you can look that up but here, the stats are what you need to know is 500,000 people have been stood down from work uh by eating to the victorian parliament uh at a stage week six week stage four lockdown is going to be a cost of 3.17 billion dollars per week to the victorian economy mm. and if the lockdown goes for six weeks that total cost per victorian is two thousand two hundred and eighty dollars now five hundred thousand people have been stood down now hopefully a lot of them get back to work soon but a lot of them will not obviously so uh ipa research found that there was a peak of 9% drop to employment in stage three lockdown. So if the imposition of stage four has a similar impact to stage three, then at least 300,000 jobs will be lost in addition to all of the jobs lost since March. Extremely depressing weekend for Victoria, extremely hard times for us. And uh, Pete, what were your reactions? Yeah, well, uh, look, just like everyone else, really flat about what happened, um, particularly when you think about the source of this latest sort of second wave is pretty much the government's incompetence with regards to quarantine. I think this bit is characterised once again by bizarre and unnecessarily cruel and arbitrary rules, like you can't play uh, recreational sport, but you can go running. So the one thing that people are looking forward to, a lot of people is, you know, a hit of tennis or whatever. But for some reason, that's more dangerous than going for a run. So... That just makes lives, people's lives a little bit more difficult. Um, When you're in a massive lockdown, a little small thing like that makes a difference. And if anything, just pushes more people onto the running tracks, which doesn't seem to be counterintuitive to me. I think the, uh, what's it called? The curfew is insane, you know? I mean, there's no reason for there to be a curfew between 8 8 p.m. and 5 a.m. It just once, as I was 
the way I see it, just pushes more people into the shopping centers. Uh, and But the main thing for me is there's no detail about what the end game is. We're not being told if we're going for an elimination uh, strategy or a suppression strategy. If What numbers do we have to be at before we'll go down in the restrictions you know if the numbers are the same in six weeks will we stay like this if the numbers are the same in two years will we still be doing this that no one's telling us like why is that so difficult for you guys to tell us what's happening i get that you know at the start there was a lot going on but we've been involved in this for five or six months now i think the people deserve uh, a bit of an exit plan so um yeah those would be my two major points james well part of that part of the problem here is the lack of scrutiny because parliament still isn't sitting nor has it sat since March and there's no measures currently in place to have a democratic mandate over any of these decisions. This is what happens when we've declared a state of disaster, which is different to a state of emergency. The Emergency Services Minister can basically override any act of parliament that they see fit right now and police can enter home without a warrant just to make sure that people are complying with COVID. That should concern anyone. Anyone that believes in liberty and believes in democracy, that is extremely concerning because that would be concerning at any time. But right now, this is the most important couple of months stretch in Victoria's history, certainly in peacetime, and Parliament's not even sitting to debate it. Stage four got passed. Uh, when stage four got passed in New, Sa- New Zealand, that was debated. Here it was just enforced. And I, I, it's just beyond comprehension that some decisions this, which will have not just effects right now, but effects for decades to come, did not get debated. Yeah, exactly right. And it's such a small group of people and it's a small group of people who have a massive, massive amount of power and there's and it's the group of people that have made a huge amount of unbelievable mistakes with regards to this pandemic. They're the ones making these decisions, as you say, and it's and it's ridiculous that we don't have Parliament sitting in light of the technology we have. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago in light of the technology we have and the Federal Parliament should be sitting as well. So, no, you're completely right about that. The other thing is, you know, we keep hearing about how we're all in this together. That is just absolutely not true. The people in the private sector particularly hospitality and tourism, are clearly getting smashed more than people in the public sector. Uh, public sector people got a pay rise the other day. So, um, you know, we're not in this together. And, of course, it's really impacting young people uh, as well compared to other other groups in society. I do want to give a quick shout-out to the regions. A lot of these regions are massive areas, uh, parts of Victoria, you know, as part as big as small European countries that have under 10 or even zero cases. So the fact that their restrictions have been increased is just so unfair. And it's just another one of these arbitrary, cruel things which really impact people's lives that don't really appear to be backed up by much, you know, logic. And, the, and to the young people, I mean, the, the debt problems that are going to come from this are so massive and they're going to be paid off by those same young people who are now being locked out of their education systems and locked out of uh, their workplaces where they could be developing skills to increase their worth, uh, their financial worth and uh, it, you know you just wonder how long it's going to take because it's going to take generations and the effects just aren't in Victoria and I mean, we've talked about how what happens here in Victoria from an economic perspective bleeds out into the rest of the nation. And we've got some more stats from that because Josh Reidenberg's recent economic update, which we talked about on this show, was put down with the idea that Victoria wouldn't get into stage four and that Victoria would come out of those stage three lockdowns that we were in for six weeks when they were, which is now out of the window. Um $9 billion is potentially wiped from our budget forecast and hundreds of thousands of jobs have been lost ahead. Uh, 
ahead of the JobKeeper wage subsidy scheme being scaled back in September. So JobKeeper obviously staying on for a lot longer. Now, the IPA research was based on New Zealand Reserve Bank figures, which forecast that during the country stage four restrictions, its economic growth was 37% lower than business as usual. So bringing that over to... Um, yeah, Victoria, that's just $9 billion that the rest of the country is also going to have to help out with. The way our construction set up, if one state goes down, the rest of the states do have to pitch in to help it out. So the idea that like all these other states that have handled coronavirus well and ba- things are basically back to normal in many places. I, mean, I know the Darwin Cup went ahead yesterday, which, you know, just to see people at the races having fun and being with each other, I was like, oh, that's what normal is supposed to look like. But um, yeah, it's it's... It's everyone's problem now. It's not just Victoria's. Yeah, of course. Australia, Victoria makes up 25% of Australia's GDP, so it's a massive problem if the Victorian economy tanks. Just on your theme of heading out to the other states, South Australia Premier Steve Marshall said the limit on home gatherings would reduce from 50 to 10, and bars and restaurants will only be able to serve alcohol to people sitting down because they had two cases in South Australia. So panic stations over there... Um, and they are looking at limiting crowds at Adelaide Oval to 10,000, but a final decision has not been made on that yet. I'm not sure that Crows will be drawing 10,000 at the moment anyway, but... Well, power um, will be. <laughs> they power are excited will be. to watch. There you go. So that's uh, that's another thing. And the final point I want to make about, unless you've got anything on that, James, did you have something no, on that? No, that's all. So I just want to make a final point. Just mention a study that has come out during this week, because, of course, the jury is still out on the whole lockdown thing anyway. There, there are... There are various studies kind of mounting up that are questioning the efficacy of the lockdown in actually preventing a lot of these COVID deaths. Obviously, uh, that's in its early stages at the moment. And I think as as the years go by, we will know if a lot of these measures actually worked. A study from Christian Bjornskov, and I've almost certainly mispronounced his name, uh, from Aarhus University in Denmark, did a study called Did Lockdown Work? An Economist Cross-Country Comparison. And he compared weekly mortality rates from 24 European countries um, and found no clear association between lockdown policies and mortality development. Now, I should point out that hasn't been peer-reviewed or published yet. It's in its draft phases, and it doesn't mean that the lockdown didn't work necessarily. It just means that the uh, the impact isn't detectable for this particular research. But either anyway, the point is, and there's, there's other studies I could go through as well. Um, the point is that the... <laughs> I mean, we'd, there's still a chance that lockdown hasn't had much influence anyway on what's gone on. So bear that in mind. All right. Did you have anything more for that, James? Well, I was just going to say the World Health Organization yesterday warned that there might never be a perfect coronavirus vaccine. So you really have to ask, like, hmm. is this how we genuinely, how long can we live like this? How long are things going to continue down this path? Because if this stretches out for months and years ahead, is this our reaction every time that there's 700 cases? Mm. yeah i mean that's what i reckon like so i want to know what they're thinking you know is it this is it forever if this never stops or yeah all right uh we'll move on to another story so whether or not tiktokers are going to get banned was a huge issue uh for every single teenager in the u.s and here in australia for a number of weeks trump was not a fan obviously uh and deservedly sorry that is an organization that sends way too much of your data to the chinese communist party so it was the idea of whether or not it should be banned now we talked with senator james patterson about and we talked with greg sheridan later in the show because my perspective is that you should be able to download on your phone whatever app you damn well please and the government should be able to tell you which ones you can and cannot do as long as it's not providing harm to others but then the obvious one of the chinese communist party is clearly lying to people about how much of their data tiktok uh, 
TikTok. I've got into the Peter Gregory. You've fried my brain calling a TikTok it's so tricky. much. Uh, the TikTok, uh, how much data TikTok is mining from you that maybe there isn't a freedom of association because you genuinely don't know what you're getting into. Now, that seems to be where the Trump administration has landed on because instead of banning TikTok, they're now negotiate. They're basically negotiating a sale to an American company and it's looking like Microsoft are going to get it where, uh, yeah, the US government is just facilitating a purchase, which in itself is kind of concerning because I don't love the idea of the government getting involved in business at the best of times and certainly on matters like this. And I did love that Donald Trump's answer was that uh, there's basically a finder's fee. He said that the, the deal would only have include a substantial amount of money to the US Treasury. Just like, I oh, just give Trump a few bucks for sorting this out for us, which I like. As uh, is, is just perfect Donald Trump businessman. And if he sees a bit of money lying around, he's going to find a way to get his hands on it. Uh, but yeah, it, it, as long as people can still have an app on their phone and that app isn't feeding data through to the Chinese Communist Party, in my head, we're getting the best of both worlds, even if I don't absolutely love the process. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm obviously with you on the freedom of association thing, but if the CCP is using it to spy on people and steal their data, then absolutely the government's perfectly within its rights to take action. Uh, and I prefer them rather than outright banning it you know, facilitating the sale to Microsoft. I don't like the idea that they get the finder's fee that you talked about. That's not how it works. Uh, but um, I think, look, the thing that Trump doesn't like about TikTok is surely that he gets roasted on it constantly. It's one It's one of the social media things that he just has no, uh, what's the word, influence on. Is that right? Would you say that's, I don't do much TikTok, as you can probably I, tell. Well, it's certainly got influence among people that aren't legally allowed to vote <laughs> in teenagers. So, yeah. look, I am never going to be a, someone that puts something past Donald Trump, but the idea that he's uh, negotiating a gigantic sale or potentially a ban of an app because it gets roasted by Sarah Cooper might, might be a stretch for me. I don't know. But I think that's part of it. I think the, other, the thing about TikTok, like we had Vines, right? Vines is TikTok. I never had Vines, but yes, I know you did love a Vine. Vines are better than TikTok. Yeah. Like it's the same, exactly the same format, unless I'm mistaken. But TikTok, for whatever reason, is just this dancing stuff. But Vines were hilarious. What changed? I don't quite know the political point you're making. Are you saying that There's no political it's, not, point it's not about the Chinese Communist Party? I'm saying TikTok's good enough. <laughs> I, it's just like vines i remember vines if you want like google vine compilations it's hilarious it's you know, not just vo- you don't need to do vine. it do it don't listen to bob no and, no and tiktok's just like these weird kids like you know all that stuff so, yeah which is anyway. what i'd say about vines but anyway uh <laughs> that's extraordinary defense uh, i think i like that i like people going like it's uh, it's too much data of the chinese communist party freedom association pete bring back vine <laughs> yeah like it's more <laughs> a side point but uh you know, it can't be forgotten that TikTok is ultimately a crap product, is what I'm saying. Uh, yes, I, I'd agree with that. Uh, now, Pete, you saw something, speaking of the uh, Chinese Communist Party, something came out of the University of New South Wales this week. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Just more, more CCP. The University of New South Wales got caught deleting social media posts from, a, from this, the University of New South Wales. Uh, they deleted tweets with an article based on comments by Human Rights Watch Australia director and New South Wales University of New South Wales adjunct lecturer Elaine Pearson, including the quote, "Now is a pivotal moment to bring attention to the rapidly deteriorating situation in Hong Kong." Now, what happened was this got caught by what is called the Global Times, 
which is a state-run newspaper in China. And what would have just been a tweet that not many people noticed, uh, heaps and heaps of people in China noticed, and they inundated the University of New South Wales emails and Twitter account with complaints saying that the saying it was offensive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as a result, the University of New South Wales took the tweets down. So there you go, a state-run media uh, institution in China can have a crack at an Australian university and influence what they talk about, which of course is has terrible ramifications for uh, freedom of speech and academic freedom in Australia. James Patterson said it was craven behaviour by the New South Wales uh, University of New South Wales. Tim Wilson also said it was a problem. What do you think, James? I think this, just like Peter Reid showed last week, the idea that Australian universities are committed to the truth. Uh, sorry, Australian universities should be idea, uh, committed to the idea of pursuing truth and academic inquiry, right? Mm. Last week we had Peter Reid get um, silenced by the federal court because the university fired him because he wasn't being collegiate over the idea of Great Barrier Reef, right? Not, not mm. a, a, as to whether or not he was right, but the idea was whether he was being collegiate. And now the University of New South Wales is silencing one of their professors or at least taking down the article so it can't be as widely read because they're criticising a foreign government. Now, here's the thing. It is a very important moment for freedom in Hong Kong. That is as true a statement as you can get, but apparently it's too on the nose for the University of New South Wales, which, by the way, the first word in that is university. It's disgraceful. Yeah, it's based fully on their the economic models. So 16,000 students make up a quarter of their student body. So they are literally making an economic calculation that we need to keep these people uh, coming to the university because the the view is that, you know, this negative, uh, what's the word, negative backlash in China will impact people coming. But I don't understand how these organizations can't turn a dime like every kid in australia wants to go to university they get billions of dollars of government funding why is it that they have to effectively toe the line of the chinese communist party to stay viable it's 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 a it's a governance issue like why why aren't you viable anyway uh yeah you're exactly right it is terrible that um that they can have an influence and of course you know we found out about this tweet what about all the things that aren't being written all the things that aren't being researched all the events that aren't happening that happened but because of stuff like this other universities see this and then go oh, let's not bother so yeah it's a real problem yeah so very concerning now speaking of peter red now a lot of people would have seen that the fight for freedom of speech and academic freedom is not over in this case peter red will be uh appealing in the high court he launched a gofundme last week to raise money to fight jcu in the high court about it as of, like, it might be less than a week, might be just over a week, but it's now at $543,178 of fundraising, which is absolutely extraordinary. I know a lot of the people, uh, I know a lot of listeners here would have financially contributed, so thank you for standing up for freedom of speech and academic inquiry, which is huge. You can go to his GoFundMe if you still want to help out. He's still accepting donations, and it's just good to know that um, there are people who are going to fight for these things tooth and nail and to the very end. So, mm. High Court Obviously, the hearing will be a long way away away, but uh, we'll be covering it. That's for sure. That's right, exactly let's go right. to... And if, if I could just going. jump in there quickly, James. Uh, just so you know, Peter has put in 300k of his own retirement savings into this and he is up against basically all the money of the Chinese... Commun oh, sorry, I mean the Australian government. Um, so the university, James of course... <laughs> 
James Cook University has all the money from the Australian government, uh, and they they've hired really good lawyers. You know, at a time when allegedly the the tertiary education sector is in crisis, so it is really genuinely just the people versus the power of the establishment and the state. Um, so if if you do feel like you want to support academic freedom, any donation would be wonderful. Heroes and villains this week. We'll start off with heroes. Grunt the pig, freedom snort the uh, snort of freedom from the pig that stood up for freedom in Wangaratta. Pete, who is your hero of the week? The thought just occurred to me. I wonder how Grunt is going in quarantine at the moment. I think there's only one case in Wangaratta. Well, but when they... we met when we met Grunt the pig, it didn't seem somewhat like the most outdoorsy of pigs. So I mm. think uh, I think he would have adjusted quite well. Just onto his 85th Netflix series. Right, heroes. Well, speaking of this is a good one. This is this this is like Grant the Pig. Trader Joe's, uh, an organisation in the United States. They're a company that makes food and stuff like that, like groceries. I hadn't heard of them, but uh, I did. I've used the internet and I found out what they did. The flip side of cancel culture, James, as we say every week, is coward culture, where media organisations and companies just surrender to a very small, organised, motivated group of people. Trader Joe's almost did that. I realised they there was a petition calling them for to change their names of certain products. So they have these things called Trader Joe, but they also have Trader Jose, Trader Ming, San Joe, which they place on some international products. Now, five seconds ago, that would have been deemed as sort of culturally, what's the word? Culturally appropriate, you know, nice that you're adapting your product for people from other countries. But that was five seconds ago. Now it's horrendously racist. So there's a petition for, to get them to change those names. Um, and initially, it sort of looked like they were going to do it, but then they changed their mind and they released this statement James we want to be clear we disagree that any of these labels are racist we did not make decisions based on petitions fantastic they went on to say recently we have heard from many customers reaffirming that these new variations are largely viewed in exactly the way they were intended so what I read from that James is that there was a bit of what would be called activism going the other way there were customers saying no we like your products we don't think you're racist. We would prefer it if you didn't surrender to these unbelievable idiots. Uh, so the two points to take out of this is it's great when a company stands up, but there's also scope for a bit of activism going the other way because at the end of the day, a lot of companies make decisions based on economics. And if you create the, the case and the atmosphere going the other way, we'll see less of this uh, surrendering. Get woke, go broke. Okay, my hero this week is Bajak Dor, who is an AFL player for the North Melbourne Kangaroos. So... This one does go across codes. So if you are like, if you heard AFL and you just phased out and wondered when the interview starts, stick around. But Magic Door is, uh, well, he's an AFL player. Now, two years ago, uh, attempted suicide and over the weekend played his first game in two years uh, for North Melbourne, played well, kicked a goal was large and in charge in the back line, took a couple of good intercept marks, so it was good to see, but obviously it doesn't matter whether or not he played well. The fact that he was out there was extraordinary. And it's just a really good story to have at this time. I mean, a whole lot of people are learning about their own resilience, and uh, that's the number one thing we're talking about as a country, being resilient, being aware of your own mental health and reaching out for people if you do need help. And so for someone to go to the very depths of uh, mental health problems and then to not only come back to a life, but to come back and perform sport at the highest level that you can. Uh, incredible, an incredible story. And he's just a testament to himself and obviously someone that we can take a lot of inspiration from. So Magic Door this week. Uh, Pete talks to us about villains. 
All right. Uh, yeah, no, really great to see Magic Door back on back on track. It was a really heartwarming story. Villains, now we know villains. Here is the Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run. Roll the tape. Mitchie. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. Okay, there you see it. That's the fake nudie run. So the award for villainy anti-freedom goes to people because it reminds me of the fake nudie run by Extinction Rebellion last year. Seems like a more innocent time, the fake nudie run. Anyway, James, who is your villain this week? Okay, my phone actually lost battery uh just as pete threw it to me so i'm now off my computer and that that like uh long time conspiracy theory that apple will fry everyone's old phones just in time for the release of a new apple iphone i now believe it i started that interview i started the show at about 78 percent battery and it's uh run out of battery Ooh. in 15 minutes so interesting times now my villain this week is bernie fraser who was uh, also head of the treasury for five years before serving as rba governor from 1989 to 1996 which is about as swamp creature and introduction as i can give anyone now the afr ran a big article talking about all the need for economic reform form in the wake of coronavirus and they asked Bernie Fraser about his opinions and here's what he said and I quote Howard and Costello had a golden opportunity to use the revenues to invest in productive infrastructure. Some of it went to the Future Fund, but really they spent it on tax cuts. They pissed it up the wall even when the economy was building up steam. Now Pete, what do you reckon about the idea of someone that influential in Treasury and in the Reserve Bank of Australia thinking the government spends money when they cut taxes? It is ridiculous. It's not spending money. That is the people's money. And the problem is the education system, James. The education system. The education system. Yeah, so that's what you learn when you do, you know, that everyone who does economics comes out with that bloody viewpoint. All right, well, maybe, sorry. But the other, and then the idea that like, uh, it's pissing up the wall to let people have control over their own money is just... As grim as you can get from uh, the Australian swamps. So, I mean, I don't know. Just a very, very grim one. Pete, who is your villain? That's true. No, all that's true, James. That's a really good point. Just before we move on to my villain, did you... Now, this was a, this was a point included by just our... Just dark I am. I'm just going to lighten up a little. Keep going. Okay, fair it's enough. It's all part uh, of the show. It, he's, talking, he's talking actually dark, not, not metaphorically dark. Um, the... Uh, that was a point made by our executive director, John Roscoe, in his fortnightly Australian Financial Review column. Is this, a t- is this an attempt to suck up, James? Are you trying to curry favour with the boss? No, I think villain? it's just two of Australia's leading intellectual minds arriving at the same conclusion over a quote. <laughs> That's fair enough. Find no, of course slant, you're exactly Pete. right. <laughs> fair enough. All right. Now, my villain. Uh, protesters in Portland. Now, we know protesters in Portland have been going for 60 days or so, a couple of months, and it's been getting uh, violent at times, a lot of the time, have taken a new uh, optic, which I don't know if they've thought through, and that optic is burning Bibles. The New York Post reports that protesters have started burning Bibles in Portland after midnight on Friday night. Uh, they were filmed burning an American flag and Bibles to start a bonfire. So, just happy to be at the book burning stage. I think these protesters, they don't Anyone sort of thinking, don't know if this plays that well for us in the media, you know, historical comparisons between other groups that have also burnt books. But have Peter, they, thought this they are burning jokes? bad books. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, for me, it's sort of like, I feel like that they're revealing their instincts here. Uh, and maybe hopefully a lot of people will see that. 
Yeah, they're saying the quiet bit out loud for sure. Okay, so we'll now go to our interview with Greg Sheridan. Now, I've uh, got to apologize in advance for some of this interview. The content is really good. Unfortunately, we did have some internet connectivity issues in the record. So uh, some of it's going to be edited down. Some of it's going to be doing pauses. For those of you who listen to this show on the 1.25 speed setting, wouldn't entirely recommend it for this one because listening back, there was a whole lot of that thing that Zoom does when, uh, you know, you've got a bad line and suddenly you just stop. But then you talk really quickly because Zoom's trying to catch up with the rest of the show. So a whole lot of that. Mm. And But what he does say is extremely good because it's Greg Sheridan and why wouldn't it be? Unfortunately, we couldn't use some of the stuff he talked about with five favorite books. So it falls to us to say to people, five favorite books is a really great podcast. People are absolutely loving it. And you can listen to that wherever on whichever platform you listen to your podcast or wherever you're listening to this show right now, you can also listen to five favorite books, which is Dr. Bella Debrera, Foundations of Western Civilization program here at the Institute of Public Affairs and also one of the very best friends of the show that we have and Greg Sheridan talking about Greg Sheridan's five favorite books still running so they come out every weekend make sure you're listening to that really great conversations really great books and uh, you know if you're here in Victoria we've got nothing to do and so that leaves a lot of time for some reading so let him hit you with some really good recommendations Uh, cool we'll now go to that interview Okay, we now welcome on to the show once again, Greg Sheridan, the foreign editor of The Australian and also the first guest of the IPA's new podcast series, Five Favourite Books, which people can download and listen to now if they haven't already. Greg, thanks so much for coming back on. Great to talk to you guys. All right, so Greg, Victoria entered stage four restrictions on Sunday night. What were your reactions to that decision? I don't have a problem with the idea of phase four restrictions. That's not to say I endorse every single thing that they're going to do. But this virus is a killer. And uh, I think, you know, the overseas experience is you've got to jump on it pretty quickly. But once you get it under control, the thing is not to let it out of control, which is what the Andrews government did uh, so stupidly. And I don't think it's been properly held to account for. Greg, you said on Sky over the weekend that you were disappointed that particularly the ABC, but even other media organisations haven't scrutinised the Andrews government enough. I've One of the things that really annoys me personally is that he sort of jumps on it every day and kind of blames the citizens of Victoria for this when it's clearly a large part of it is his government's fault. Do you think there needs to be more criticism or scrutiny of um, state governments in general, and particularly the Victorian state government by the media? So daily, daily... Presscom for leaders to interact in the virus, approval ratings going up, and it's happening in all of our states, but it's much worse in Victoria than elsewhere, is you've got a fundamental basic breakdown in the accountability mechanisms of democracy. Victoria is not really a functioning democracy anymore. It's not a tyranny, and, I mean, it, it has the rule of law and it has elections and everything. I'm not suggesting Andrews is a dictator, nothing like that. But all the accountability mechanisms of democracy are gone. So just today we hear in the Public Accounts Committee, uh, the, the opposition and the crossbench uh, members of the Victorian Parliament Public Accounts Committee wanted to have a proper uh, inquiry into what, was, what had happened in the breakdown in the quarantine hotels. The government just shut that down, used their numbers to say, no, none of your business, Parliament. You keep your noses out of it. And they've just used the obvious mechanism of referring it to an inquiry by a retired judge to say we don't have to answer any questions on it. Then the media is very thin. The state political gallery 
is less populated than it's ever been in the history of state politics. I think the ABC has produced a colossal failure here. The ABC's raison d'etre is that it can do things which commercial media doesn't have to do. Yet it abolished all of its state-based current affairs programs. You know, the 7.30 report every night used to be a state-based program with a federal element, you know, so there'd be a national politics element, but the program was based in each state. The ABC now doesn't have any state-based current affairs TV. No media, no ABC media, no scrutiny. You've got um, a couple of kids in the state press gallery who do a fantastic job. God bless them. They're the heroes of Victorian democracy, but wildly under-resourced. The traditional state-based newspapers, the Herald Sun, the Age and so on, and a national newspaper like the Australian, do all do a good job, but they've never been more leanly staffed than they are now. So the whole idea of a state government being accountable, having its policies scrutinised, the citizens being informed of what the government has done and what the consequences are, the negative freedom of tyranny, but the positive freedom of any proper scrutiny and accountability has disappeared. And I think that's a very bad structural position for Australia to be in. I think that scrutiny is also missing, obviously, because Parliament isn't sitting. And that, to me, is doubly extraordinary. I mean, New Zealand debated stage four restrictions in, the, uh, in Parliament. UK were able to do it over Zoom. And I think it's incredible that the government says for every other industry, find a way to work from home. And we're still awaiting Daniel Andrews uh, to talk today about what essential businesses are going to be forced to work from home or shut down. But the idea that every other business can work from home except Parliament, I, I think that's an absolutely extraordinary one. I don't really have a question other than to say, as, are you annoyed as I am about that? Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, James. Um, but I'd go further than you. I think Parliament should have been sitting in person. Up, You can do it with proper social distancing. Parliament is an essential industry. You don't shut down a hospital. You don't shut down a fire brigade because of COVID. So Parliament has to sit, in my opinion, for democracy to function. But of course you can do it with members two metres apart. Maybe they only each have one staff member come in. You can use masks. You can use hand sanitizers. You only have a certain number of people in the chamber. It should not be beyond the wit to work out a way that members could vote on divisions from within their offices or something. I think it suits governments not to have parliaments sitting. And, you know, I have some sympathy with federal Labor's criticism of the, of the federal government, that uh, the national parliament should be to say, well, every incumbent government in the world thinks you don't really need parliament. But citizens do really need parliament. Policy and government are better when they're scrutinised, when their ideas are, uh, you know, examined and debated. All right, so moving on from the lockdown, Greg, you um, also know a lot about American politics. We know the American election is coming very quickly. Now, Donald Trump is way behind in the polls, but he was also behind in the polls in 2016. Is he going to win or is he going to lose? There's a question. Well, look, I made such a bad prediction last time that I, I am really, you know, I may be quite stupid, but I'm just smart enough to learn not to do the same dumb thing twice in a row. So I, I'm going to, 
you know, courageously sit on the fence. But I honestly do believe that the result is unpredictable. I do think the odds favour Biden heavily, very heavily. Uh, Trump was behind in 2016, but he's much further behind now. Now, the COVID-19 virus has virtually taken all those away from him. He can't have his mass rallies. He draws tremendous energy from them. They are a means of strategic communication. Also, he's much he's a much more effective campaigner out of office than he is in office. He's an attack politician. He's not a defence politician. Uh, the virus, on the other hand, has been incredibly kind to Joe Biden. Biden is a very weak candidate. You know, every sentence that comes out of Biden's mouth starts from a recognisable place, but derails halfway along the road and, and becomes just a spectacular train wreck. You tremble with trepidation when Joe begins a sentence. You know, he tells you 150 million people have been killed in 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 gun violence in the US, which is half the whole population, or he tells you Lebanon and Hezbollah, of course, now rules Lebanon. But he hasn't been subject to any of that scrutiny because he has a free pass to hide in his basement. And then I'd also handled COVID-19 very on most people's minds at the moment, whereas four or five months ago, you could say, well, he's produced a magnificent economy and that that will be the main thing on people's minds. Having said all that, Trump still could win. He is very dynamic. He's behind by about 8% according to the poll consensus. If he's behind by, he can win as he's popular vote by 3 million but lost the electoral college. Uh, it's, it's within striking distance, but he's got to turn the dynamic around. His voters will be more motivated than Biden's voters. Biden is very strong in demographics that don't tend to vote, young people and African-Americans. Trump is very strong with demographics that do tend to vote, older people. So there are a lot of reasons, uh, you know, Biden's got to pick a vice presidential candidate who will bring some negatives as well as positives. And eventually Biden will have to come out and debate Trump. Um, although you'd think you'd need more than just three occasions when Biden is subject to scrutiny. So for all of that, I think Trump's a shot. A piece of commentary I heard from Ben Shapiro when he was on the Joe Rogan podcast was that Donald Trump's really good at making you not want to vote for the other person, but he's terrible at giving you reasons to vote for him. And I think that kind of is what he's running up against now, which in 2016, because he's not in charge, he, is, he can really launch the attacks. But now that he's the incumbent, he sort of has to convince people to vote for him a bit more than just vote against the other guy. Yeah, I think that's right, James. And I think he went with the economy. And Trump in our nomination, a normal Republican probably would have run away from that fight. Trump fought the fight and won. Kavanaugh is a great judge. And it was very important that the principle of guilt by accusation not be surrendered to. He had the economy in great shape. Unemployment was, what, 3.5%. Black unemployment was the lowest level it had been in the history of records. Um, he had a bigger defence budget than any Democrat could possibly have had. He was a pro-business president. So there was a pretty strong case for Trump before the virus. With the virus, that economic narrative, it's not, a, I believe Trump has handled the virus poorly, not disastrously, but poorly. At the same time, the virus has taken the economic narrative away. Now, Trump still needs to make the debate, I'm better at reviving the economy than Biden is. But also last time he could say, 
I'm going to smash the system, I'm going to drain the swamp, I'm going to cut some years, but still it's a mess. You know, I haven't got the wall built, I haven't drained the swamp very well. And the thing that's on everyone's mind, of course, is, uh, is the virus, and um, that's not helping him. But uh, Shapiro's insight that Trump is very good at making you not want to vote for the other guy, that is Trump's forte. He's an attack politician. It's often very unattractive, but he's extremely effective at it. Um, Crooked Hillary, uh, Lion, Lion Ted Cruz, uh, little Marco Rubio, um, uh, Sloppy Joe calling Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas because of her ridiculous claim to be Native American when she plainly wasn't. These are very effective, and he's not able to do that so far in this cycle. Uh, one of the things that's really stuck out for me, Greg, um, is so we've mentioned the virus and things like that. Uh, sorry, we mentioned the, the, the things that Trump could say he's done well, like the economy and the price of electricity and, and all those things. We had the virus, which, he, as you say, he didn't handle that well. What do you think about one of the things that came out uh, during the violence that followed the virus? And this was a point made by Tucker Carlson is that this was the guy that was going to protect America, you know, from the from its enemies, you know, like it was the guy that was going to protect American culture, make American great again. Um, yet I think a, a lot of Americans feel like the violence that's followed coronavirus to do with Black Lives Matters and to do um, with, with all the things that happened in terms of ripping down statues and smashing up businesses and smashing up homes, that he was a bit impotent during that period and he wasn't able to protect America. Do you think that is true? And do you think that's going to be a significant factor in the election? That's a really interesting uh, area, uh, Pete. It's, I think it's actually very, very complex, and it's proven, in a sense, too complex for Trump. Um, I would have thought that it was almost an iron law of politics, almost like Newton's law of gravity, almost axiomatic, that violence in big cities helps a Republican and hurts a Democrat. And indeed, in the 60s and 70s, the Democrats kind of embraced the politics of right. Uh, I think, you know, Trump has some tremendous and unusual strengths as a politician and done some astonishing innovations in politics. His inability to frame a message around that violence. Um, his, now, of course, he's got most of the media dead set against him, whatever he does. So you see him give a beautiful speech at the Mount Rushmore speech. And I'm not someone who generally says what Trump says is beautiful. I find most of what he says very ugly. But the speech at Mount Rushmore was a very fine speech in the best American traditions, still condemned by CNN and the New York Times and so on as a pro-slavery preach. That was absolutely bananas. Condemnation, which itself has failed to give a proper narrative around this city violence. The thing that he did, sending in Department of Homeland Security um, you know, paramilitary uniformed agents to arrest demonstrators on the streets, it didn't do any good. It didn't stop the violence anywhere. It didn't work symbolically. I mean, for federal troops to go in, it's the sort of thing that appeals to Trump because it's symbolic. But the symbolism, it's too transparent. So people want to say, what are you really doing about crime on the streets? Not, not what symbolic gestures are you making? It's quite limited what a president can do but he certainly could have run a crusade. And Trump's inability to communicate a message like that, I think, was a bit surprising. 
Uh, moving to another topic. So there's increasing reports that Trump is going to either ban TikTok or I think the, now the rumor is that it's going to negotiate the sale with Microsoft or something like that. Uh, it, banning TikTok presents a challenge to people that love liberty because on the one hand, you should be able to download onto your phone any app that you choose. But on the other hand, there's so many weird stuff about privacy. And I read this recent Reddit thread on all of the things that TikTok tracks about you and your phone that... Uh, maybe you could argue that freedom of association doesn't apply when you have such little knowledge of what you're agreeing to. So where do you fall on something like TikTok being banned? We are trying to bring these institutions under the rule of law, but at the same time, not prevent freedom of speech. So when television developed, you had to bring it under the rule of law. When radio developed, you had to bring it under the rule of law. Newspapers, the same. Now, I think in, in a lot of those technologies, the regulator became too heavy handed and we lost too much freedom. I mean, in Australia, we have the worst, most restrictive, most anti-democratic laws of libel and um, uh, slander that you have anywhere in the Western world, and that is a tremendous constraint on our freedom of speech, tremendous constraint. Having said that, though, I think two things concern you about things like TikTok. The first is just Chinese ownership. That's not a racial thing. It's the Communist Party of China. If it was owned by the Japanese a Japanese firm or a Singapore firm, I'd be much more relaxed about it. But if it's owned by a firm, so if Microsoft buys the thing and you can still do your downloads and so on, that seems to me not a bad idea. On the other hand, though, I do think all of these big tech companies ought to be able to do much more disclosure. Now, James, it will astonish you to hear I'm not a very techno-literate person. But every the, the way you signed up to this Zoom call was uh, applause worthy, all right? Don't sell yourself short. But every time I access anything on Google or any piece of technology, it says, we use cookies, we spy on you all the time, and either you accept or you reject. But if you reject, you can't go ahead and use the application, you know? You, you're locked out of doing... You can't say, I reject your ability to spy on me but I still want to have access to this website. I don't know why that is, and I think our regulators have been slack in allowing what are now kind of public utilities, really. Google, it's good that it's in private hands, but it is really like a public utility. You can't sort of go onto the internet without, um, without using it. So I think they ought to have to disclose to us much more clearly what they're doing there ought to be limits about how much information they can take from us. They ought to give us an option to say, no, you don't get the information, but I still get to use the, uh, the function. And I think Western societies are groping towards that, uh, that position. I think we haven't been too, too fast in rushing into regulation. I think there's been a sober responsibility about not wanting to abridge freedom, but you've got to protect your privacy and you've got to protect your national security. G'day everyone, welcome back to another edition of the Young IPA Podcast Weekly Quiz. Hey, what did we miss? Bit of a change this week, just to rev up a tired old format I'm going to host, uh, and James is going to be one of the contestants. So let's welcome our contestants, uh, Director of Policy at the IPA, Gideon Rosner. How are you going, mate? I'm good, I'm good. I'm, uh, you know, what is a day, uh, whatever, of house arrest here in the Spencer Street bunker. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's uh, another day in paradise. Yeah, you do look Isn't like you're loving are. it, folks. 
Yeah, he's he's really flourishing in these conditions. He yeah. is. Uh, it does look like he's in a, in a bunker from deepest, darkest central Melbourne, which of course we now is no is now under complete house arrest. Yeah, Dara McDonald. Oh, sorry, you keep going, Gideon. No, I was going to say, as a lot of our colleagues, you know, very sensibly headed for the hills and tried to skip across the border, but I'm here right in the belly of the beast, watching uh, the you know everything implode upon itself, like the last chapter of Atlas Shrugged. Uh, you know, this, this is Atlas Shrugged, and I'm John Gold, baby. This is Gold. Right. Fantastic stuff. Now, Dara, of course, is one of those people that fled for the hills. Dara, research fellow at the IPA and the IPA's resident mixologist. Dara, where are you at the moment? I'm in northern New South Wales, so I'm a fugitive from Victoria and I've head, headed up to my folks' place, which is on the New South Wales-Queensland border. How close? That's really close to Byron and Nimbin, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah. Yep, so who, who would have thought a hardcore free marketeer would come <laughs> out of the Byron Bay Nimbin region? What's the weather like? It's beautiful. I could be sitting outside. I'm sitting outside at the moment on the balcony. Oh. I could be wearing a T-shirt if I wanted to. That is unbelievable. I didn't want to make you too jealous. Well, you've managed to do it anyway, James. How do you feel about being a contestant and not the host? Do you feel relieved? Do you feel nervous? A bit of both? I feel like an abdicated king, just uh, with all the relaxation that comes with the lack of responsibility, yet knowing my legacy is secured because no one's ever going to come close to how good I was at it. I've got a few questions for Dara, actually. Um, And the questions without notice, so I apologize, Dara. But Dara, what's outside like? (laughs) What's outside like? Uh, It's sunny. It's nice, nice sunny. I can even give you a little like, this is outside. I'm on the balcony now. Look at oh, that. So that's what the sun looks like. That's what, what a tree is. Say, say oh, you the dog. Yeah. I remember that Don't be melodramatic. We're allowed outside once a day. Oh, okay. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Well, that, that leads into my we, second question. Dara, what, what's a restaurant we, like? We get our time in the yard and the house arrest. You know, I mean, come on. You know, Chairman <laughs> yeah. Ben's looking after us. Why don't you get a bit of Stockholm syndrome <laughs> like everyone else? Okay, I so watch. question two, Dara, what's a restaurant like? Uh... Uh, it's, it's getting there. It's getting there. Unfortunately, the pub which I used to work at is closed for renovations at the moment. Otherwise, there would be a pub like 10 meters from here. So, you know, I'm, I'm suffering a little bit. Primary river, but... baby. <laughs> so Dara lives like, well, he's from northern New South Wales where it's sunny and lives 10 meters from a pub. That is unbelievable. So but you gave up all that up to come down to Melbourne <laughs> to fight for freedom, Dara. That is truly inspirational. All right, let's get into the quiz now. Uh, question one, as we know, uh, what, is, what do you say at the start, James? You lose a point for an incorrect answer. You get one point for a correct answer. Uh, whoever wins is the king or queen of the world. And, okay. Uh, buzzes are your first names. Buzzes so, are your first name. Okay. Yeah, important you know, to remember. Important to remember that yeah, your buzzer is your first name. Let's get into it. Now, it actually took me a while to come up with these questions, but they're very good. Number one, how much did IPA research find that stage four restrictions in Victoria will hit Dara, gross? Sm- uh, 3.17 billion per week. That is absolutely correct, Dara. Oh. I can see that you have not just been making cocktails in lockdown. You've actually been... <laughs> Working hard, I was going to say, you know, you have to give you both decimal points, but you did that anyway. So one to Dara, Gideon, Neil, Bolt, Neil, obviously. Now, question two. What did WA Premier Mark McGowan accuse Clive Palmer of wanting to do in WA? Build so, Jurassic Park. No, is it? I, I suppose it's not really accusing if it's correct. No, it is correct. <laughs> I, what did you say? Build Jurassic Park. You already did that on uh, yeah. uh, Coolum or but something. Like, but like a good one. You do realise that 
You just realise hey, the incor- incorrect that, answers lose a point, James. Palmasaurus. No, I've decided to uh, to take everybody's attention off the quiz. But Palmasaurus on the Sunshine Coast is actually fantastic. I saw it before he shut it down. I went like the whole hotel is completely isolated and desolate and, and run into the ground. But he has all he's got millions of dollars out animatronic dinosaurs there. It's quite spectacular. So Mark McGowan, you should be so lucky. Gideon, of course, <laughs> on the payroll of Clive Palmer. What? I that wish. was incorrect, by the way. My bank balance would look a lot, uh, a lot better. <laughs> if Clive, if you're watching, Gideon's a very talented individual. So that's incorrect, by the way. Does anyone have the correct answer? Doesn't look like it. So what he accused him of doing, but Clive Palmer, of course, wanted to get into WA, uh, wanted the exemption for the WA border closure. Mark McGowan overnight, or yesterday, really accused him of trying to spruik a massive supply, and I can't say this word properly, of hydroxychloroquine. Is that right? The thing that... Hydroxychloroquine, yeah. Hydroxychloroquine. That's it. That's what he accused me of doing. All right, so Bolt loses the point. Oh, no, no life-saving medicine. Ooh. <laughs> All right, question three. The Office of the Australian Information Commissioner has looked at the Institute of Public Affairs. Gideon. This happened during the week. Did you uh, say Gideon? It was the, they're reviewing the decision by SBS uh, not to release details of um, the article it deleted about bushfires or something. I'm going to need a little bit more information. Oh, it it reviewed uh, an FOI request that we lobbed in. Maybe a little bit more information about the article? The article was about bushfires. What what did it say? It was something like... (laughs) <laughs> Look at Bolt's face. Well, I'll, I'll uh, continue the I question. I don't even know this I think was on the Dara, it was, Dara, it was uh, saying that bushfires had no link to climate change and yeah, then they deleted the article, I think, and then saying that's that exactly there was no right. link. That's exactly right. No, tell us why. That's exactly right. I was going to, yeah, so it was... Uh, decided to commence review to the rejection of the IPA's Freedom of Information request seeking information from SBS as to why they deleted the old Australian Associated Press article for their website. And I was going to ask you what the article was about. It was from former CSIRO oh. scientist David Packham who said linking bushfires to climate change is absolute Very nonsense. Man. And uh, they just took it down for no apparent reason uh, in November. All right, question, what are we up to? Question four. Yeah, question four. In the I AFL... The Dara won that one, I presume. Dara got that point, yep. I got that point. I said, I'm so, actually not I'd, I'd share it with you, all things considered, because you jogged my memory, but you know, <laughs> apparently that's not how it works. So, winner take all in this game. <laughs> Gideon jumped in early. Like, it's not like a, hard, a primary school athletics no. club, although they, they keep. Everyone scoring. gets a participation, no, participation trophy. Participation ribbon here. <laughs> all right. Uh, in the AFL, Magpies coach Nathan Buckley was fined for breaking AFL quarantine and playing tennis. Who did he play tennis Bold. with? Alicia Mollick. I'm going to need a little bit more information, James. One thing that annoyed me when you were doing the quiz was that you would continue the question after people jumped in. I would not be doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Alicia Mollick, Brenton Sanderson, and Annette. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll give you... What I'll do is I'll give you half a point for the first bit. So that means... Gee, this is hard point. You're negative (laughs) 0.5. Not as easy as you put so, Pete. That's right, that's right. Who did he play tennis with and how much was he fined? Oh. Did I get the... Yeah. Uh, $1,600 odd dollars. Can is I go back in? Answer? That is incorrect, Gideon. Uh, you can, yeah, yeah, can come back in. 50K. Yeah, I'll take 50K. What? It was 25K yeah. each, but that was how much yeah, he was fined. Yeah, it was a fine from the, the AFL. AFL. Yeah. I was by yep, the AFL. So it wasn't oh, okay. like... 
Yep, yep, yep. So it wasn't like the so James actually goes up to zero, Dara on two, Gideon on negative. Not only the one. AFL now, not only are they stupidly woke, they also what they they seem themselves as sort of assisting the state in uh, enforcing quarantine laws. They're like a militia group or something these days, or a auxiliary force. Well, I actually fired an AFL journalist for reporting on the Richmond captain's wife breaking coronavirus restrictions. So I think they just don't want any attention on anyone at the hub at all. So when something pops up like this that can't be avoided, it's like we're going in. Well, it's a good thing, good thing Nathan Buckley didn't do something really horrendous like quote from the Bible. <laughs> he got out of a bloody cannon. <laughs> All right. On that note, John Roscombe in the Australian Financial Review last week wrote about Thatcher and Reagan in his fortnightly piece. He wrote, in Reagan's first budget, his 1981 Economic Recovery Tax Act cut the top marginal rate of federal personal income tax from what to what. I hope you guys all read the boss's piece last week because... I read it, but I don't know. remember any of the figures. Can we play close to the pin? Uh, yeah, we'll play closer to the pin. There's okay, two, there's two numbers which will make it complicated, but I will. Okay. That was uh, exactly my guess. That's annoying. Uh, <laughs> it would be easier for me if you just made it your desk guess oh, as well. That's, okay, Gideon, 33 to 21. Yep. I'll oh. go 34 to 22. Okay, Dara. Mm. The old park. Very cheap. 50 something, 52. 30? Dara is closest to the pin in Reagan's first budget. His 1981 Economic Recovery Tax Act cut the top marginal tax rate, federal personal income tax from 70 to 50, which is incredible in my view. 70? 70 to 50, yeah. My word. That is... Ooh, that's a spicy my, meatball. All right, Dara well, gets the point. Don't any ideas. He'll be doing the opposite. All right, now this one is, I'm sure, close to many of your hearts. Uh, which micronation announced its oh, Gideon. dissolution? Oh. Gideon, Gideon. Hut River Province. first. It was the Hut River Province, so Gideon gets a point. Goes up to a zero. refugee program. Why would they be joining, rejoining Australia now of all time? That, one of the more bizarre decisions ever. If there's any time to seed off and be your own country, it is right now and set your own borders. Like, you know, why not rejoin during the Howard years or something? But now, oh, that, that goes that escape hatch. I was going to be, uh, you know, the new... Chief Propaganda Officer for the Hunt River Province, but... Uh, I was going to be town crier, just walk town around the bell. Crier. Yeah, just I've always thought that's my natural calling in life. Just walk around the bell and just say, hear ye, hear ye. Presumably they can also also say that they're the one province in Australia that is 100% coronavirus free. So, besides, know, which, besides which, Bolt, that job exists. It's called being policy director of the IPA. Yeah, yeah, well, you don't have a bell yet, all right? I only respect the town crier with a bell. A lot of people putting themselves in the shop window for other employers today. I'm not sure what's going on here. Okay, question seven. Hang on, did I give anyone a point for that? Yeah, I gave Gideon a point. Did I already give you a point? This is harder than it looks, Bolt. Maybe, I don't know. It's like, right, whose line is it anyway now? That's right. Question seven. Australian rugby player Israel Folau was once again the centre of controversy. He did not stand for Black Lives Matter. Are you sure about that? He didn't. He, yeah, it's the uh, opposite. Israel Folau, well, no, he didn't take a knee for Black Lives Matter. He stood up for the anthem. I'm going to give you the point because you got there in the end, but yeah. only because I'm a good bloke. Yes, he oh, didn't yeah, take I'm, the I'm knee. I'm going to be king of the good blokes. It was, it was my show of mercy that cost it, <laughs> kept him... That was a two-point swing on my interjection. <laughs> and you were the whole, are you sure about that? Come on, Pete, be objective. 
<laughs> yeah. No, he, he knew it was, I, I took Stan as a figure of speech. So I'm happy to give Gideon the point for that. He copped criticism from Peter Fitzsimmons. Nothing like a white guy telling a black guy what he should, or a person of color what yeah, he should be correct. doing about uh, racism. So that was question seven. All right. Gideon two, Dara three, Bolt zero. Still Whoa. all on the table. We're up to the who am I? A couple less questions this week. New model. Uh, who am I? So well, what's been this new model, Pete? It's just less <laughs> questions. <laughs> That's I just streamlined. It's a streamlined model. Oh, there uh, we go. Interesting. So who am I? You've already you've all said it before. I'll ask a question. You get five points. Four points, three points, two points, one point. There's a bonus point at the end of this one, so there's even more chance of anyone still winning this. As I said, James on zero, uh, Dara on three, Gideon on two. Okay, I was died on August three, which was on Monday. Uh, in 2008, so fairly recently, August three, mm. 2008, for five points. You lose one point for an incorrect answer. 2003, you say, 2008. I 2008, 2008. I might have right. said both of those dates, but it was 2008. No, it was hmm, 2008, eh? What happened Anyone in got anything? No. No. I don't know either. GFC happened in 2008. Oh, yeah. as you cool. asked. oh was it uh, our future? Yeah, yeah, it was. Five points. Yeah, the, the semblance uh, of a free market system in the American economy. Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, okay. Oh, five points. Huge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. I fought in the Red Army in World War II and was awarded the Order of the Red Star in 1944 for four points. Gideon. So, yeah, Gideon. Was it Boris Yeltsin? It was not Boris Yeltsin. Ah, oh, Boris you Yeltsin. Go I'm back. a big it's Boris fan. Bring him back somehow. What do you like about Boris, Gideon? Oh, that he was. <laughs> What's uh, not to not like? As, not, he was better than uh, Putin, and he was a drunk. I mean, what else do you need? Yeah, <laughs> some and electrifying actually, YouTube videos. And, and actually, um, one of my favourite stories about communism is Boris Yeltsin <laughs> when he went to the US on some sort of junket. And he saw all the usual stuff and they, you know, all the diplomatic stuff. <clears throat> and then he snuck out, presumably to buy a bottle of vodka. And he went to an American supermarket. And going to an ordinary supermarket, he saw the piles of food that were available to ordinary Americans and realized mm -hmm. then that communism had been a terrible mistake. It's actually one of my favorite stories um, of all time. It, the, the, the power of the humble supermarket and something we take for granted. Well, actually, not anymore if you go down to Yeah, we are not taking supermarkets <laughs> for granted. Well, yeah, which, we, should tell, we should tell you something. Shop while you can. Okay, number three. I was sentenced no, to... Don't do that. <laughs> I was sentenced to eight years... No, yeah, I reckon do it. Don't trust the state. Uh, I was sentenced to eight years in a labour camp and internal exile for criticising Stalin Dara. in a private... Dara. Uh, Dara. Dara. Dara, you're first. Uh, uh, oh. um, uh, uh, Archipelago Alexander Solzhenitsyn. That's it. Dara gets it. She was already oh, in front, but now she's right in front. She's got six, so she doesn't need the bonus point. But no. uh, I'm going to ask her. That's extraordinary. I was going to ask it for her anyway. So, yeah, uh, criticised Stalin, won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970, wrote the Gulag Archipelago, and one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. Bonus point for spelling it, Dara, the name. Oh, uh, Russian spelling? I don't know Cyrillic, so. <laughs> just, uh, just the English. We'll do on, I thought on this we occasion. The brightest of the IPA, but clearly <laughs> no, not. No, clearly not. No, no, you're a Russian Cyrillic? Cyrillic? No. Uh, no, I, I don't know. S. No, I don't. I'm, so, S O L. Oh, you're going no, for the surname first. That's all right. Okay. Google, Google it, anyone playing at home. Thank you very much for the quiz, guys. Dara is the winner once again. Let's go uh, well on done, to the uh, next segment. Sensational performance.
All right, that was Peter Gregory's first job hosting the quiz. And you did very good, Pete. i got to say, Thanks, my friend, I reckon you did very well. Now, uh, how do you reckon you went? Let's, let's, let's openly talk about this. I reckon I went well. It is more difficult than you uh, imagine when you don't... Uh, sorry, adding up the points. And just thinking about it now, it's hard when people ask early... Sorry, answer early before you've read out the whole question and they give you half an answer and you don't know how you... Uh, how to play through that. So I guess I probably, what I'm saying is I've been a little bit too harsh on you over the years, Whoa. but I, I do like the changes I made. As this well. is an incredible moment. <laughs> it is, it is, uh, it is an incredible moment. Um, yeah, this is yeah. a watershed and breakthrough. Um, I did notice uh, something in the quiz uh, seemed a bit short. Yeah. Maybe uh, two questions short. Well, that's right. I decided I made a conscious decision at the beginning of the quiz making process the oh. 10 questions was too many and that actually I reckon eight was enough and I don't think we need we don't need 10 questions so I was really pleased with my streamlining reform what are your thoughts what do you think about that James just just thought it was interesting just thought <laughs> uh, it was interesting all right yeah. uh, <laughs> so it's just I'm like watching the footy last night I'm like where do you get questions from <laughs> I was like oh no <laughs> It takes a while. No, yeah, as I there, yeah. but I, I don't want to get into the weeds of how we make this program. But this week was an especially difficult week to find stuff. Yeah, you want to find some happy, uh, go lucky stuff for the quiz. Now, let's fly through the last two stories we're going to talk about, and uh, this is cause for celebration. Obviously, pretty tough week here in Victoria. Pretty tough show, uh, just from like pretty grim stuff we're talking about. But this is cause for celebration. Yeah, COVID safe. The $2 million project, the stuff that was going to keep us all safe, the stuff that 5 million people downloaded, the stuff that has all the issues over whether or not it is safe to have everyone's data stormed in the same place that also the key is stored. This international, uh, what, what do you call it? This honeypot for criminals everywhere and for foreign <laughs> governments, $2 million, COVID safe, all these things. It found two cases. Pop the champagne. Woo! I've got it's the first case. Right I've got the Galliano. We're, we're <laughs> going to be celebrating all night because COVID Safe has found two cases. I believe uh, Celebration is playing underneath us right now. Pete, how happy are you? I'm really happy that they finally got their first cases. Uh, it, it's been a long time coming, and I guess, you know, now we can all start to prepare to not be under restrictions. But what I like most about this, James, is they found these cases at the Mounties RSL in Western Sydney. Now, the oldies always get bagged for not being able to use technology. You know, it's the boomer's fault. I like that the first cases were found at an RSL and actually 544 people who visited Mounties RSL in Western Sydney were able to be tracked down on the COVID safe. So 544, probably mostly oldies, are all across the app, mate. And I'm sorry, just, that, that's another moment of just like, man, remember when we used to go to pubs where there were 544 people in there? I don't think they're all there at the same time, but... Yeah, and, but still, just the idea. Just seeing people that you don't see every day. I'm going to miss it. We'll be yeah. back. We will be back. Maybe. Uh, right. Last story we're going to talk about is... Uh, th this is just one of the things you can't stuff up. Uh, there are some... You shouldn't make mistakes at any time, but mistakes are uh, unavoidable. But there are some things that you just can't make mistakes when you do. 
And Owen Jones found one of those. Now, Pete, I obviously said at the start of the show, Owen Jones was coming back. This is someone you want mm. to talk about. Do you want to talk to the people about what's happened this week? I will. So for those that don't know, Owen's jo- Owen Jones is a, is a big lefty in, um, in the UK and he's very sort of aggressive. Uh, he's sort of... He's, the thing I think... Probably the most thing that annoys me about him is he's quite effective, but it's mostly through just, you know, absolutely pronouncing half-baked ideas as just absolute truth. Anyway, what he did on over the last week is had a Guardian piece called I Joined the Twitter Boycott. So, like, you know, already this is annoying. I Joined the Twitter Boycott, but racism on social media is just the tip of the iceberg. You're good on your Owen Jones. Anyway, he was talking about Wiley, who I'm told by reliable sources, is a rapper uh, who had just made a series of anti-Semitic tweets. But the picture in the paper was of Kano, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who is a different rapper and a different black man. So I don't know if to people who work at The Guardian and to Owen Jones, if all black men look the same, but guys, that's really offensive. If you could please get things right and use the right photo when you're talking about someone in the newspaper. Especially in an article talking about racism on social media. That's especially just the one time you cannot make that error. Especially when you've made a career out of like, uh, what's the word? Exaggerating, you know, racism in our society. Like, especially when your whole thing is racism is everywhere. Uh, you know, yeah, including, and then you like <laughs> including our website. Uh, extraordinary scenes. Uh, that is it for the Young IPA podcast this week. Thank you to Greg Sheridan and thank you to Gideon Rosner and Dara McDonald for joining us on the quiz. If you like the show, if you haven't already, make sure you're giving us a review in Apple Podcasts uh, and we're also on any podcast platform that you can think of. We're also on YouTube and Facebook. So if you do have friends and family that would like the show, again, we're in Victoria. We've got nothing but time on our hands. I know I've been listening to more podcasts than I ever thought was humanly possible. So if you want to pass on the show to them, that would be great. Listen to the other podcasts that we've got here at the IPA as well. We've obviously got Looking Forward every Wednesday. We also have five favorite books coming out and Australia's Future, while that's wrapped up, if you haven't had a chance to listen to the three episodes of John Roscombe and former Prime Minister Tony Abbott talking about the Australian way of life and how to protect it and nurture it through coronavirus, that is all available as well. Don't forget moral banter. Viral banter, obviously, as well with Generation Liberty. That's on every podcast platform and on the Generation Liberty Facebook page. And if you do want to get your reading list sorted, you can also go back in the archives and find the great books of literature podcast with Tony uh, Tony Abbott, with John Roscombe and Andrew Bolt. And I'm also in some of them just as your uh, producer extraordinaire. Uh, We'll see you guys next week. See ya.